there is still a lot of angst around what is nursing theory? What is nursing science? You know, what, what does it mean to do nursing research? Who gets to call themselves a nursing researcher? Uh, and I tend to take the view that if you're a nurse and you're doing research, it's nursing research. But Welcome to Undisciplinary, a podcast where we're talking across the boundaries of history, ethics, and the politics of health. Today we're recording on the unceded lands of the Wadarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation in Geelong and Melbourne. Uh, today I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Courtney Hempton. Um, and I won't ask you how you're doing because <laughs> you rebuffed that question last time. So what are we uh, talking about today and um, yeah, who are we talking with? Today we are discussing some issues in history, politics and ethics um, in relation to nursing. And we are joined by Quinn Grundy. Uh, so Quinn is a registered nurse and an assistant professor with the Lawrence S. Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing at the University of Toronto and an honorary senior lecturer with the School of Pharmacy and Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. Quinn is a fellow with the World Health Organization Collaborating Centre for Governance, Accountability and Transparency in the pharmaceutical sector. And her research explores industry influence in health and healthcare and the implications for health information, healthcare delivery and scientific evidence. So, Quinn, welcome to Undisciplinary. So pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us late in the evening, Toronto time. It's much appreciated that we're keeping you up. This is the hour for speaking with Australians. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Um, so perhaps as a an introduction to you and your work, um, maybe start by telling us a little bit about your professional background and um, disciplinary training. Uh, so you've trained and practice as a nurse before moving into academic research, and you use a variety of theoretical and empirical methods to explore industry influence in healthcare. So perhaps if you have a story about what led you to vary that area of research. I'm so excited to be on this podcast because I feel like this is the first place where my academic trajectory makes sense. And in, in nursing, um, we typically find that nurses come to academia later in their careers. So they, they've gone into nursing, they become clinical experts, leaders in the practice field. And then there's usually some compelling question that brings them to doctoral studies and onto research careers. But I did it in a very backwards way. And I actually started uni, had lost my path dropped out and started working as a research assistant for a nursing professor. And her work really centered on the very practice-oriented pedagogy that disciplines like nursing or other practice-based fields employ in their teaching. So things like preceptorship, field teaching, practicum and problem-based learning. And I figured I needed a degree in something and that this sounded like more fun than sitting in a lecture hall. So I was doing research during this time uh, and immersed in, in very qualitative methods. We, I, I was learning things like, started with projects like photo voice, which is a very non-standard or perhaps introduction to qualitative research where we sent nursing students with cameras to their rural and remote placements to understand that learning and pedagogical experience. 
And then when I finished that all, I realized I'd been groomed for graduate school and I went to the University of California in San Francisco and actually started my PhD at the same time I started practicing as a registered nurse, which is very atypical. So I was working with the Department of Public Health at a medical respite and sobering center which is a nurse-run policy experiment that diverts people with, essentially who are inebriated enough to trigger 911, or I don't know what the number is in Australia, emergency services. Uh, and, it, and it serves as diversion from jail or the emergency department to an appropriate level of nurse-led care. And this, I think we'll circle back later to uh, when we talk about my vision for nursing, but the kind of autonomy that we could have in that sort of practice and, and to have a very systemic and kind of policy-oriented intervention in the community was really exciting. And so at the same time, I was pursuing a PhD in nursing, but with a health policy emphasis. And UCSF is a wonderful place because the nursing program actually is, has a medical sociology program embedded within it. And so I had the pleasure and privilege of studying alongside budding medical sociologists and had all of our qualitative methods and theoretical courses, little science and technology studies mixed in there. Of course, UCSF was the home of Anselm Strauss, but it was also the home of Patricia Benner, who had studied with Dreyfus. So to say there was some Heideggerian influences in there and the grounded theorists in the room. Um, and, and so I ended up doing a, a dissertation that applied interpretive phenomenology to a very health services research project with a mix of this kind of corporate influences on health lens applied to it. And I've, I've never quite <laughs> been able to really explain that all to anyone. So thank you for the chance to share that genesis. Right here sounded like a quite a um, fabulous time during grad school there with all of those different groups of people. Yes, and I think it's actually now that I see other places and other options, it, it was such a rich training experience to to have that. And I, I love again the title of the podcast: the undisciplinarity built in, um, as people still, you know, I think the interdisciplinarity and the multidisciplinarity is, is still a bit of a buzzword. But really, uh, nursing has came to the academy quite late. I think in Canada, the first nursing doctoral program was in 1990. Um, in in the states, it was obviously earlier in the 60s. But most of our nurse leaders. So the people that I trained with, many of them had PhDs in other disciplines. Mm -hmm. So we have our, our, you know, nurse researchers and leaders trained in education and philosophy and psychology. And um, I think the nursing discipline, uh, we, we are masters of the undisciplinarity and beg, borrow, steal, create quilts, all sorts of uh, different ideas together. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that, um, I guess, uh, the, the way nursing has not always sat comfortably or been welcomed into the university context has given this sort of advantage of then needing to pursue doctoral studies in other areas um, that then feed back into the richness of 
what nursing is and nursing education, nursing research. Um, yeah, because that's something that, uh, you know, we are in Australia and you've, you're talking about your um, studies in Canada and the US. Um, the Australian context you have had some experience of, although not in practicing nursing, I don't recall when, yeah. So for the listener, I know Courtney always thinks that I should talk more uh, about with people who I know. So I have known Quinn previously. We were uh, at um, University of Sydney uh, together. And um, when you were there, you yeah, so you weren't practicing. No, no I uh, took one look at the licensure process and yeah. <laughs> couldn't face it. Yes. It does trouble me a little bit, though, that you didn't know the emergency services number for Australia. So for your entire <laughs> no, time, you would just be dialing 911. <laughs> that redirect? I feel like it should. it should. I think it does for us hapless expat tourists, yeah. temporary skilled workers. Um, <laughs> that is interesting. I mean, it's, it is interesting to think about Canada and Australia being part of the Commonwealth. I know, I know that, for instance, Australia... With um, doctors, the British Medical Association sort of governing structure was still um, in Australia in into the nineteen sixties, uh, as such that doctors who then were registered here could quite easily transfer and practice in uh, the Commonwealth. Um, so it's interesting that there isn't that, I guess, hangover in nursing to make it easy for transfer of your qualifications to Australia. But that's perhaps a bureaucratic question for another time. <laughs> um, but sticking with, I guess, those those relationships, I mean, the, the history, politics and ethics of nursing is clearly a huge issue. And in Australia, um, nursing education and training at the, at the undergraduate level has often been at the margins of the university. So sometimes, I think maybe even three or four years ago, there was a discussion as to whether it should the, the Bachelor of Nursing should be moved out of the university. And, and I've had my mother on this program before. And when she she trained as a nurse in the um, 60s and 70s, and, and that was outside of the university context within a, within a hospital uh, and teaching college. Um, and so nurses have been, I think, seen to be marginal and without much influence in the healthcare setting due to a lot of these historical, structural, um, and I guess just general social uh, prejudices. Um, uh, and also, you know, we, we talk about the ethical issues, but I think thinking of ethics broadly and, and thinking of them, I guess, as political as well. But these ethical issues faced by nurses also don't often get the same attention um, that bioethical issues faced by doctors get in both broader discussion, but also in, um, you know, specific, say, ethics, medical ethics textbooks will tend to focus on that uh, physician's experience as opposed to the nursing experience. Um, so I was just interested in some of your reflections on those, I guess, broad questions around sort of the, the place of the nurse both within university but then in hospital and the lack of attention to some of the specific ethical issues faced by nurses it's a very broad question i realize <laughs> i'll i'll bring it 
back to something very concrete we can work out from there. So, I mean, this this year, I think, provides numerous illustrations of this phenomenon that you're circling so well. It was meant to be 2020, the year of the nurse and the midwife, proclaimed by the WHO. But globally, every event to honor this, amplify this, provide a platform for this was canceled because of the global pandemic. And ironically, the pandemic especially this COVID-19 virus, there is no medical cure for this. People survive COVID because of public health, which is largely nurses, and supportive care, which is nursing care. And yet the discourse, the research, the media, the discussions in the public arena, the, the policy tables... Uh, are overwhelmingly dominated, at, at least in this part of the world. I'm sure this is also the case elsewhere uh, by physicians. And we've seen, I think, kind of a whole, a wide scale erasure of the work that nurses do, which I, I think is typical. So for example, we we had our vaccine rollout happening here. And I think one of the, he's actually an army general who's on this COVID vaccine task force was quoted saying something like, needles will go into arms today. And you, you, it's stunning because there is just an erasure of the person who has scientific knowledge and skills who was trained for this that administers the vaccine. And there tends to be, at least within nursing, I actually, I think it, it's fair to say that no one else considers this even to be a problem, but within nursing, we tend to then become very self-reflective and say, well, nurses are apolitical. Nurses don't have media training. Nurses don't know how to engage in policy processes, you know, nurses, nurses, nurses. Uh, But I've been speaking to, I have a lot of friends who are nurses, obviously. It's a big part of my life. My students are all practicing nurses, especially at the graduate level. And I have been hearing anecdotally that many of them, most of them are actually under legal gag orders by their employers. And how come no one has mentioned this? Like it's, it's astounding. And certainly there are some high profile physicians who have been critical of the public health or health system response who've been sanctioned in various ways. But I have friends who the hospital threatened to take away their email if they kept, and these were people who were sending emails internally, uh, who have been disciplined by human resources, disciplined, called up by the college. And we don't talk about this. And we don't talk about the ways that institutions structure nurses work. I don't think there's an example of another profession that has so little control over the tools with which they work or the conditions that they work under. Uh, I mean, I mean, they're not you know, the only one, certainly, but certainly compared to medicine. And I think there is perhaps like a very concrete inability to speak to some of these issues that even nurses don't necessarily recognize among themselves. And then I think you layer on that uh, a very gendered reality, uh, uh, you know, how we view the work of caring versus the work of curing. Um and, and the fact that even where these people are at in their personal lives, like many of these are, are people who are working with small children under 
pandemic conditions. That's who a bedside nurse tends to be, right? They're younger. And I, I think it's been really interesting. One series I'd like to, to give a shout out to, the, there's a great um, blog, Nursing Clio, that has done a fantastic series called After Florence, because the year of the nurse and the midwife was meant to commemorate Florence Nightingale's birthday. She, of course, is our most famous nurse. But it turns out that some of these foundations are highly problematic, including the imperialism, the racism. And when you go back to Florence, although she did a few things I think we can be proud of, I think in our very foundations was creating a nurse who was largely silent in terms of, of being political. And, and we can point to very many other nursing pioneers and foremothers and forefathers who, you know, were arrested, were agitators. Like Emma Goldman was a nurse, right? Yeah. Mary Seacole was a nurse. We have some really rad nurses out there, but Florence was, you know, the one advocating for whiteness, for a very demure professionalism. And I remember even in my own university education being taught how to suggest, how to recommend rather than how to decide. Mm. And I think it's not a coincidence. Um, but then again, that still points to like a problem with nursing education and nursing socialization. And we forget that whole piece about the gag order. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, that uh, we will put uh, links to the um, Clio blog. I, I was reading the one about um, Emma Goldman um, and her career um, as a radical anarchist nurse. Um, and uh, yeah, interestingly, and we may talk about this soon but interest just in talking about this now makes me think of that article you sent about the um visibility of nurses or being hyper visible or invisible and she and emma goldman got into nursing when the police i think were looking for her and she put on a nurse's cloak and she was able to walk through the city and even got a police escort escort to walk around the city because I just thought she was an off-duty nurse and then sort of got into nursing through seeing how it provided a certain invisibility to allow her to pursue other interrelated means of social reform. But that's a fantastic example because I think, like you say, the, the invisibility is strategic in both ways, right? There, it, it's strategic and, and part of these institutions and organizations to make that kind of work invisible but I think also for nurses uh, they they hold a great deal of trust we know that uh, even in relation to physicians for example and we move through very intimate and personal spaces and and I think it's 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 part of you know centering the person under your in the communities under your care that you Invisibility is perhaps the wrong word, but, mm. you know, nurses become often part of the communities they serve and the people that they're caring for in very intimate moments. And it's not about the nurse in that moment. And I think that's truly kind of the art and skill of it, but can make it quite vulnerable. You know, it's it's like when you have true mastery of something, you don't even see it happen, right? Mm. Like the, the, the practice aspect of it, you know, to be able to get uncomfortable painful 
work done in a way that is not disruptive or painful or chaotic. Uh, and it, yeah, it works both ways. Um, you mentioned when, when you were talking about the gag order uh, and in that context of talking about um, the historical uh, and current treatment and characterization of nursing, you mentioned nursing as a profession. And that seems to be something that is either a nub, one of many nubs about whether nursing is a profession, say, historically understood or even sociologically, I think it's Elliot Friedson. Um, and if it is a profession, it gets to sort of have a certain autonomy and self-governance um, which medicine has enjoyed and safe and and vigorously fought for such that and we've had this uh we had a discussion about this on another episode about conscientious objection and how that is something that uh, a lot of doctors um argue that they should have this right to be able to object and um from performing certain practices that doesn't and that same those same uh i guess moral and political tools aren't available to nurses when they're called upon to do things. And, and that we were talking about then the concept of moral distress seems to be something that comes up in nursing discussions more so than in uh, medical physician-focused discussions. Uh, I'm so glad you brought up moral distress. I love to... to not talk about moral distress, but I, I am. So I, I'm currently teaching uh, undergraduate nursing students and my job is to take all the, the competencies that they require to meet the licensure requirements for the College of Nurses of Ontario, which is the self-regulatory body, the same model that other professions are, are regulated under uh, to do with policy, ethics, leadership, Feel like there's other words thrown in there but I've decided this course uh, can have an advocacy bent and I'm trying to teach them this idea that that conditions exist and they only become problems when we decide we ought to do something about them and the first question they ask me is well do I have to choose a nursing problem and I'm so fascinated because we are we have an accelerated two-year program. And I am just, I've said, where in this space? You've been with us for not even two years in your socialization as a nursing professional. And you somehow come to believe in the existence of something called a nursing problem. And when I start discussing it with them, I, I, I kind of dig and I say, well, if something impacts health, is that not a concern for nursing. And when I give them permission to talk about climate crisis and the epidemic of opioid-related deaths and anti-Black racism, they're really excited and they're really smart and they can think about these problems and I hope will one day solve some of these problems. But somehow at some point in this very short degree, they've had a box drawn around what is considered a nursing problem for them. And I think what you've hit on, Chris, is that 
the whole professionalism thing and profession thing is a very angsty issue for nursing. And there's a number of facets of it, right? So it's it's trying to prove worthiness to enter the academy. And, and many of our foremothers were, and I say mothers very specifically, they were blazing trails in an academy where there were no women, certainly no women with children. And having to prove that nursing, you know, when you look to the sociologist to be a profession, you have to have a scientific grounding, right? So this was the era where, where nurses in academia were trying to come up with grand theories that could form the basis of nursing practice. Well, I think we can all imagine what some of the problems are with having a grand theory of anything. And that was in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But there's still kind of some of those threads that remain. What is it? What is our work? And I really love the idea of nursing as an undisciplinary discipline, but there is still a lot of angst around what is nursing theory? What is nursing science? You know, what what does it mean to do nursing research? Who gets to call themselves a nursing researcher? Uh, And I tend to take the view that if you're a nurse and you're doing research, it's nursing research, but that may not be a popular one. I think, too, in terms of like regulating the profession on the ground, even in the United States, there's not a universal bachelor entry. So there's still diploma degree programs. It is not very long ago that nurses were trained in hospital schools. As you said, if your mother was on the show, she probably articulated well the advantages and disadvantages of these models. But there are many people who do nursing work at various levels. So we have nurses now with masters and doctoral degrees in clinical practice with prescribing authority. Many of them in certain jurisdictions can practice independently like a family physician. We have advanced practice nurses who are clinical specialists in various areas, including education. We have bachelor prepared nurses and diploma nurses in some jurisdictions that have the same scope of practice. So trying to come up with the argument for why you'd want a university educated one is an angsty space. And then we have licensed practical nurses, registered practical nurses, which is a lower, not a lower, but a a more defined or circumscribed scope of practice than a registered nurse, which often comes with a lower level of pay. And then where we've seen in the pandemic, especially in aged care and long-term care facilities, healthcare aides and personal support workers Um, that take a short course and are are doing a lot of the body work involved with nursing. And I think nursing still struggles in in trying to attain legitimacy to to create those definitions and also to advocate where we know that a higher skill level, a higher level of education is actually associated with lower mortality, lower morbidity, and working against a, a cost argument. And I think it's very hard to have that conversation without devaluing the knowledge, skill, expertise, and work that our other nursing colleagues do. And it creates divisions, I think, in advocating for some of these patient care issues, while also not minimizing the importance of having highly trained, highly skilled people doing these sorts of tasks. So I'm losing my train, I think, a little bit here, but there's... I think a lot of facets that come to this idea of whether nursing is a profession that that range from, you know, what is our science to, you know, what are our disciplinary structures? And I think the way it plays out in practice, like, for example, our college right now, they're 
biggest issue in this year of the pandemic is implementing training around how not to be a serial killer because one of those slipped through their fingers fairly recently. And we have been given a mandate by our college in education institutions to incorporate curriculum around how not to be a serial killer. Wow. And I, I just like want to hear the serial that. killer story. Just... <laughs> oh, I think my internet's on a bit of a delay. It, Sorry. No problem. But I, I think what um, what it boils down to, which I find so fascinating, is that nurses kind of represent a profession that have a great deal of power and privilege and yet feel oppressed and often are oppressed in various ways. And that actually is an incredibly dangerous combination. I feel like there was one thing else I wanted to add. Oh, okay, moral distress. Yeah. So with my students, it's illustrated so well because I asked them to choose a, a problem and to argue why it's a policy problem. Why should we do something about this at a systemic level? Why should anyone else care? And often they talk about problems. So excess mortality in aged care facilities due to COVID-19, right? Lack of personal protective equipment and rampant spread of COVID-19 in hospitals, shortage of whatever. And they say, this is a problem because it causes nurses such moral distress. And I say, okay, wait, but are you more distressed than the person who died <laughs> of COVID, right? You know, we, we've had a, a, a number of really high profile cases in Canada that are illustrative of the experiences of Indigenous people in care. So one of them that, that made news and, and eventually a national inquiry was Brian Sinclair, who was a Winnipeg Indigenous man with a chronic health condition who went to the emergency room and sat in the waiting room, I think for 36 hours without being seen and died in his wheelchair from a preventable bladder infection. And there were a national inquiry into this. He was known to staff. Uh, clearly racism was at play. But some of the nurses who were interviewed as part of this inquiry would say things like, this is a triage nurse's worst nightmare and would express their moral distress. And certainly they are distressed, but because we've given ourselves and restricted ourselves to this language of nursing problems, we, we've lost sight of the fact that your, your moral distress in this situation is, is not more significant than the stress of you know, the person dying in the wheelchair of a preventable bladder infection. And I think we need to, to recognize for nurses, moral distress is a signal. It's a symptom. And that nurses, I think what I, I hope to do in my teaching or my research is that we need to give a different set of words so we can articulate the cause. So to say that your moral distress is significant, it is ethically significant, but it is not the problem. Yeah, no, that's that's a really interesting way of, yeah, as, as um, you know, neither of us had had much uh knowledge of this concept it was through a listener's email uh that sort of made us look at this so that's an interesting way also of uh i guess of brought contextualizing um this ethical concept and reframing it 
And there are spates. There's so much nursing research into moral distress, Mm. how to deal with moral distress, how to alleviate moral distress, how to prevent moral distress. And it's not to say that that distress is insignificant. And certainly it can lead to burnout and poor mental health. But when we articulate these problems only in the terms of moral distress, the whole cause of that distress remains completely untouched. And so nursing research and advocacy and professional conversations in our education ends up being completely focused on, on managing the, these feelings rather than kind of validating them and then figuring out, you know, what to do about the distress in the first place or where did that distress come from? I see Courtney's coming in and out. Is she back? Yeah, sorry. I missed the last part of that conversation, but I'm sure it was fabulous. <laughs> it was, and it's a perfect lead <laughs> to then this discussion of whistleblowers uh, and the paper that um, mm-hmm. you shared from um, uh, Perrin, Rudge, and Gagnon on um, hypervisible nurses, effects of circulating ignorance and knowledge on acts of whistleblowing in health. Uh, we'll share the link to that advances in nursing science. You said that this was your favorite paper of the year. Um, my favorite paper of the year, and I've assigned it in all my classes. They have a great website as well called nursingobservatory.ca, where they have a number of outputs from, from their project. And I, I'd like to give it a, a shout out because I think it shows so well the consequences for an individual nurse who does name a problem, who does articulate the source of a moral distress. Uh, And when nurses step outside of, you know, that very safe and apolitical way of defining problems that the neoliberal healthcare institutions have very specific mechanisms that are, are, are quite akin. Actually, I've, I've also read a lot of the literature on whistleblowers for corporations mm. and this idea of taking a whistleblower's account and invalidating and, and taking away the credibility of the whistleblower itself. And again, making the whistleblower the problem rather than the conditions that they have articulated. And I think what is so prescient about this work is that we are seeing this play out uh, during this pandemic. I've been watching the news in several cases where, where nurses and physicians also who have spoken out about the conditions under which they work, whether that's not having sufficient protective equipment, um, you know, not being able to determine the conditions of their work or patient flows, um, criticizing, you know, institutional policy that they know to be unsafe and facing really serious repercussions. Um, And this this research was done prior to this. And and we're just seeing, I think, so many examples of how this this occurs. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic uh, and fascinating article. And yeah, I really like the discussion of sociology of ignorance and creating these sort of epistemic landscapes where ignorance is valuable in in those contexts. Um, uh, and I was wondering, yeah, whether you wanted to expand on a little bit of that and, and, and the way the nurses, I guess, fit into that sort of 
ecology of ignorance or landscape of ignorance in, in the whistleblowing situations. Well, and I think that's partly why the, this work really resonated with me because I, I have seen it kind of by another name in my my own work, certainly. And it's really reminiscent of also the work of Lindsay McGuey and strategic invisibility, which is something that I, I, I kind of built on in looking at nurses' relationships with industry in clinical practice. And I think it, it also speaks to, you know, nursing work in general. If you, if you see something and you can name something, then often you also have to value it. And in our society, that also means you have to pay for it. And so we know that in many organizations, nursing work and, and the value of that work is lumped in with room and board. Whereas physicians, for example, are often in a fee-for-service model and can bill for every single action, right? And so I think in terms of the whistleblowing paper, there's you know, a strategic invisibility. There's this ignorance that's enacted, um, you know, the kind of hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil to allow institutions to function. And in, in my work, I, I would say nurses emerged. They're, they're fantastic nurses at, at patching holes that shouldn't exist and filling gaps in the system so that the system can continue to function. Nursing work, especially clinical practice, is extremely immediate. And you have a person with extremely immediate needs and a proximity that many other health professionals don't have. These are problems that are now problems. These are not later problems like in our lovely world of research. And I, I remind myself of that so often. There is no such thing as a research emergency. Um, and so nurses become, especially skilled and highly experienced nurses are, are so good at jury rigging equipment to make it work in ways it's not meant to work, finding workarounds to make systems flow, to keep people happy, to make things appear out of thin air. And, and all of this work is 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 so important and very skilled, but it also has the function of making holes disappear, making malfunction disappear. And I think when we see instances of, of whistleblowers, a nurse has come to a point where like they morally cannot patch that hole anymore or cannot witness that workaround uh, because there has been, you know, such an ethical violation um, or, you know, outright completely awful treatment of human beings, which we also see in other cases. But I, I think uh, we, I, I saw this in my book with nurses' relationships with industry that, that turned out to have had, you know, front page headlines splashes when it came to pharma and physicians, but not a breath of this in any sort of policy on industry interactions, conflicts of interest in the literature, even institutional awareness. And then when we did the ethnographic work, finding that nurses interact with industry reps on a day-to-day -day basis from a number of industries in a number of different ways, but that these get renamed and, and remade into something else and fall under this radar very strategically so that many of these out, uh, many of these activities that you know nurses engage in with, with industry are effectively outsourced and it and it works quite well for the hospital 
or institution um, to not see these things happening. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we've touched on it and you've mentioned it a number of times, this sort of strategic visibility or invisibility in the way that it were, it seems to just refract in so many different ways, um, both to the advantage or disadvantage um, or ambivalent um, results uh, for, for the nurses, whether in the context of whistleblowing or elsewhere. But maybe um, considering the time as well, we don't want to keep you uh, up too late in Toronto, <laughs> um, but we, maybe we should move to discuss more explicitly your book and, and how some of these themes play out in that because it's, um, yeah, fantastic. Um, your book is called Infiltrating Healthcare, How Marketing Works to Underground, Works Underground to Influence Nurses. Um, and a zillion questions about this book. It's fascinating material. Um, and really what it does is offer an account of the way that the medical industry's marketing practices have become routine in the part of delivery healthcare with particular reflection on the role of nurses um, and so perhaps it might just be useful as a starting point um, to maybe explain a little bit of the US context in which you were kind of conducting this research and the first chapter starts with an introduction um, around the Physician Payment Sunshine Act in the US which then had um, potential effects on um, the regulation of payments to physicians in the US. Um, and so perhaps if it's maybe useful to introduce, um, I guess, the intentions of that legislation, which was introduced as part of the Affordable Care Act, um, and maybe explain what the p possible effects, whether the effects of that legislation actually aligned with what the intentions were, and whether there were any kind of shifts of that um, regulation under the Trump administration over the past four years or so. Yeah, so yeah, I was studying, I was starting this work around the time that the Affordable Care Act was coming to life. And there was this little bill, this Physician Payment Sunshine Act that was part of it. And I think it's actually important to acknowledge that this has been kind of a global movement toward greater transparency of the relationships between physicians and particularly the pharmaceutical, but also the medical device industry. And I think that followed a very booming 1990s, 2000s for the multinational pharmaceutical industry and lavish marketing and gift relationships with physicians. And so I think policymakers around the world were interested, at least at, in scrutinizing these relationships and, and sensing uh, in a few countries there had been some drug safety scandals but in other countries, particularly with, with public insurance, I think concerns over, of, over cost. And Australia was actually one of the first countries to bring in some sort of transparency regime, uh, but it, it is a, a self-regulatory model on part of Medicines Australia, the pharmaceutical industry. And um, I have to say their model has been very inclusive of all health professionals from the start. And so I've really enjoyed working with the Australian data because we have some insights into how industry um, interacts with nurses that we don't in other countries. So as the States was ruling this out, I think it, it's named the Sunshine Act and Senator Grassley, who was one of the sponsors of the initial bill, has been quoted as saying something along the lines of, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. So there is a very neoliberal belief that if we just shone the light on these things, that people would be deterred from 
doing bad things and that the good things could continue. And so the bill itself has never regulated and never intended to regulate any relationships between physicians and industry. It only required that companies make publicly available in a searchable, downloadable, analyzable database, the value of payments and the the product they're associated with. And I think it's now in effect, I think we have about seven years, seven or eight years of data. And unsurprisingly, there's very little change in the number, total value, nature of of payments. Um, So I think in in general, it is is making very little difference to the way that these interactions happen. I think, again, it was really framed as kind of a buyer beware, that the average patient could look up their doctor and be informed about their industry relationships. And I think what we're learning is that it was perhaps never really for patients, though I think for the savvy patient, it can be interesting. But the value of this data, I think, is to researchers, to policymakers, and to journalists. And I think the most effective kind of problem definition and awareness raising we've had are, are from, from journalists. Uh, and you see often this, you know, some high profile, somebody who has all these undisclosed ties, and that's a major news story. I think we've gotten the conversations a bit stuck on disclosure and whether or not someone disclosed properly. Uh, and so I'm, I'm interested to see what comes next. But there certainly also are jurisdictions like Canada, where we have no transparency around these interactions. And it's a real limitation for doing any work in this space, um, particularly from a policy perspective. So I was was surprised at the time that nurses were not included, having gone to drug dinners myself as a student nurse, colleagues who were on speakers bureaus. So anecdotally, I definitely knew that these sorts of interactions occurred. And so kind of two questions and back to our invisibility conversation was, you know, did policymakers not know that these sorts of relationships happened between nurses and industry, or did they just not believe they warranted any sort of scrutiny or, or regulation? Yeah. I mean, I thought it um, was really interesting. I think it's um, was in the introduction to your book, you note that in approaching um, I guess hospital sites, administrators of those organisations to conduct um, your observational research and interviews that um, you were repeatedly told that intera- these interactions between nurses and industry didn't happen or didn't happen in their um, organisation. So I'm just wondering your reflection on that in terms of even, I guess, as an entry point, given your own experience, even... Um, I guess just the logistics of navigating that level of um, invisibility around these interactions, even at the, I guess, the starting gate of you trying to conduct this research. Yes. And I, I was again reminded of it this week. I think this is going to be an ongoing theme in my life as a researcher um, because the, the key finding of this book is that there are some pervasive assumptions, I think, that stem from many of the issues we've already discussed. But the fact that fundamentally, 
the, the discourse around this is that nurses do not interact with industry. When they do interact with industry, it's not marketing. And that even if it's marketing, it doesn't matter because there's no decision making to sway. And so every time I try to start work in this area, I met with a similar response. And it, it's so frustrating because I know what the response will be. <laughs> and I wrote a book that would document the contrary, but certainly gaining access to institutions. I think the work only happened because some people took pity on a board doctoral student and said, okay, you can look, but you're not going to find anything. But now I've moved to Canada and I'm and establishing, trying to establish a program of research here. I'd really like to continue uh, this vein of, of inquiry, but coming to Canada, they say, oh no, that's, that's the US. Nurses don't interact with industry here. And I'm like, wait, but... <laughs> And uh, I've been doing some of their work on sponsorship of nursing associations, just because I, I do want to document, you know, like who is interested in marketing to nurses, what kinds of companies that actually, there are some distinct patterns, but you go to submit this work to the kinds of journals that are having conversations about industry influence and commercial determinants of health and when it has nursing in the title or nursing in the sample, it um, is seen again as a nursing problem and a very niche issue. And, and you meet the second, you know, in your peer reviews, you get the, the second and third pervasive assumptions that, okay, well, if nurses are being sponsored by industry, it's probably not marketing. And then even if it was marketing, it doesn't really matter because they don't prescribe. And is that the main issue? Like, is that the i guess the uh that they're not seen as prescribing medicine so the and maybe that's the way we think of in industry and particularly pharma influence in medical practice is on influencing doctors to prescribe a particular drug so what are some of the benefits to industry to i guess uh have these interactions with nurses that are being missed and overlooked I think a little bit decision, the way we think about clinical decision-making is highly individualistic and it gets expressed as the prescription, um, which is a bit silly because, you know, surgeons, for example, prescribe much less than an internist and are clearly making decisions as well. And there's a little bit of literature on surgeons, but then it gets complicated. Um, I know in the States, for example, they've extended their legislation, the Sunshine legislation to other prescribing clinicians. So physician assistants, nurse practitioners. Whenever I am doing this kind of work, I always get asked about whether these nurses prescribe or not, as if that's the key factor as to you know whether anyone would bother marketing. But I think it's more than just what we know. I mean, I, th I think you're right, Chris, that it does stem from like a long study these wonderful access to internal industry documents that the pharmaceutical industry is fundamentally about increasing the number of prescriptions, but it also ignores some fantastic social science. I'm thinking of Joe Dummett, is it Dummett, Joe Dummett's book, Drugs for Life, that in an, in an era where the blockbuster drugs are for chronic conditions, it is not so much about getting the prescription written as getting it filled and refilled. And that is the territory of drug compliance and drug teaching. There was just a lawsuit in California and a nurse whistleblower 
where a company has this program called Nurse Ambassadors, who are drug company employees, registered nurses. And the state of California alleges that these nurses are in fact a form of kickback because a doctor is induced to prescribe this really high cost biologic medication because that patient then gets in-home support for drug teaching and compliance from a nurse ambassador. And the whistleblower alleged that these nurse ambassadors were then reporting side effects and safety data to the company instead of the physician. And this service is, again, a great example of a gap in the system that shouldn't exist. Everyone should have access to that kind of nursing care, but it's being provided by companies. I think, too, what we're seeing with nurses is that the, the fixation on prescription as a form of decision making is a really simplistic way of how decisions are made in clinical settings, and there's the whole space that nurses are taught to recommend, to suggest, to monitor, to assess, to, uh, we have a large literature, Kalman Applebaum, look at, he talks about getting to yes, how you actually have to align all these stakeholders to make sure a prescription is written and then filled. He also ignores nurses, unfortunately, but names a lot of other stakeholders. I think it could be extrapolated. Um and, and similarly, we know that pharmaceutical marketing uh, often engages in disease awareness in an effort to, you know, create markets, to, you know, construct new disorders. And that involves many, many people more than, than prescribers. It also completely neglects the world of purchasing and the question about who buys all the stuff in a hospital who picked out your glucometer your bladder scanner your wound care dressings your ppe who's buying the isolation gowns who's buying the cool new operating room lights um, and this is something i'd like to explore further because i think purchasing and procurement tends to differ a great deal in different countries and health systems and hospitals but i think clinicians are becoming more and more involved in these process because hospitals are realizing that cost cannot be the only consideration, that it's much more about cost effectiveness. Um, and for a number of areas, wound care, diabetes, as two huge examples, nurses are the ones making almost all the decisions about the selection of products used in care. And we've really overlooked, I think, the role of the medical device industry in all this. Um, yeah, I think and you just brought up I was, um, the medical device aspect, I think, um, at least to my mind, not being from this kind of area of research, when there's discussion about kind of um, payments or kickbacks in, at least in medicine, like, I feel like I automatically, I'm one of those people that kind of naively automatically thinks to kind of pharmaceuticals. Um, but I think, and in your the opening to your book, you kind of discuss um, the role of um, medical device reps in kind of clinical context and kind of being in surgery settings. And I must admit, I went down a bit of a nerd rabbit hole with through the open payments <laughs> database in the US, um, which is a little bit out of date, I think, but there's a ProPublica analysis of some of the that data called Dollars for Docs. Um, and I think what, just one of the in interesting things that I found being very new to this kind of analysis was that I guess the cluster of the top 10 highest earning um, and these are just looking at um, medical practitioners, not 
nurses, as we've discussed, um, but they were mostly from specialties like surgical medicine and neuro. So um, kind of more in those spaces where they might be using medical devices, but the kind of highest um, frequency of doctors were more in the kind of um, area of psychiatry. So I also thought that was an interesting distinction just in terms of um, where the money is kind of located, at least in a medical space, um, and how that kind of, as you said, limiting this analysis to prescribing doesn't actually necessarily even make sense given even the data that we have from medical practitioners. Yeah, certainly. You guys should invite uh, Jane Johnson or Katrina Hutchison on this show yeah. who are, yeah, good idea. unless they've already been, but they, um, they've yeah. done some really interesting work on the relationships, particularly between surgeons and the medical device industry, because a lot of those high payments are actually accounted for by royalties for patents that the surgeons hold. And this idea of, of when, when is it surgical innovation? When is it marketing? Where's the line? And what are the ethics in that space? And they've, they've done some really brilliant work in that vein. Um, I recognize that it's past uh, the hour and getting turned uh, into the... an incoherent pumpkin. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to finish with one really big rambling question <laughs> that will try to tie it all together. Um, uh, and then you can just go with it as long as you like until, until you go to sleep. Um, so, you know, I think throughout this conversation and throughout uh, your work, it's reveals these interesting power dynamics around nursing. And some of them are acknowledged, under-acknowledged, um, and just not seen. And nurses, as you sort of point out in your book, you know, there's that phrase, just a nurse, and you have uh, a good discussion of that in the context of the Miss America uh, pageant. But um, this idea of being just a nurse, I think, does go through sort of the general public understanding, I think, at least in Australia as well, there is that sense you were talking about in the US context, but similarly here. Um, uh, but as you argue, um, they are the most, and this is a quote from your book, the most uh, critical for medically related uh, industries in the area of health reform, and they're situated at the hub of multidiscipl uh, multidisciplinary teams and focused on the prevention and management of common and costly chronic disease. So there's this ignoring of that role that we've been talking about of the prominence of nurses within um, care and management. Yet, say as we were discussing in the context of whistleblowing, there is also this sort of powerlessness within the healthcare uh, organisations, particularly those governed by managerialism and neoliberal logics. Um, and I'd just be interested in how you or others theorize and think about these different manifestations of power and powerlessness. And I guess another aspect of, like you mentioned earlier, sort of the power and privilege of nursing. I know in Australia, there's a historically been a very strong nurses union. And so this sort of sense of capacity for collective action. But then also, yeah, in these other institutional contexts. Yeah, and, and I guess, yeah, just... You know, people like, say, Pierre Bourdieu could provide ways to think about sort of symbolic capital and maybe thinking about symbolic power or, yeah, just other ways that perhaps you have thought about the way we can think about these different manifestations of power and the 
subjectification of nurses. Absolutely. So I think, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a number of ways to, to come at this that I, that I find interesting. So on the one hand, um, some of my colleagues, so Denise Gestaldo, Dave Holmes here in Canada, they've characterized nursing as a form of governmentality. And when we think about many of the origins of nursing, we have roots in the military. I mean, that's Florence, right? We have um, roots in religious orders and even public health nursing in you know, the era of the welfare state was you know a, a tool to to create the ideal social citizens right teaching people how to mother teaching people hygiene health promotion and and you know a, an ordering of of social life and i think another lens through that is is to 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 examine nursing practices the profession through a very gendered lens of feminist lens and and particularly nurse historians, a colleague of mine, Siobhan Nelson and um, Susan Reverby. Uh, They've done some wonderful historical accounts. Uh, Professor Nelson was presenting some work recently on the nurses who cared for the Dion quintuplets. Do you know of them in in Australia? This was depression era. Uh, Basically, these five identical babies were born to a, a Francophone family in Canada and the the state essentially took these children and put them under the care of a physician and when we thought about when they talked about the nurses and the work they did there there's this idea that nursing could be could be just any woman right any woman could take the role of of nurse but we also have have a history through this as as not just any woman and Florence Nightingale actually brought around the professionalism that said any white middle upper class woman and i and i think efforts to engage politically efforts to strengthen unions efforts to you know to to have some of the the visibility or or more power in terms of you know the conditions of work or structure of employment really been hampered by the fact that nurses often very much identify or strive to identify with male-dominated or historically male-dominated professions like medicine because many of them are from that that same class right same race right it's it's a form of I think nursing is an expression of white supremacy in in many aspects and I I think there have have been some I mean, the Nursing Cleo series has been wonderful at highlighting a lot of this, you know, the erasure of you know, the legacy of the Black midwives in the United States and, and Black leaders that served alongside Florence. Um, you know, the Indigenous nurses and, and people who did nursing work before Florence and, and their legacy and their knowledge. Um, so this is becoming maybe equally rambling to the question, but I... I really like to be an academic because you get to live in, you know, in some sense, the empirical world and what is, but you also get to live in a space to kind of have ideas about what could be. And, and I, I think I really strive in my, in my teaching or my work. Um, if, if we can maybe begin to talk about things in a different way, we can maybe 
you know, understand them in a different way and then act a different way. And so in my teaching, for example, like, you know, avoiding the, the conversations about moral distress or talking past that saying, okay, well, if that's the signal, what is the problem? Um, and I think naming some of these, these structures, whether that's a, a, a legal gag order or the structures that nursing has aligned itself with the, the union um, movement is, is really interesting. Um, and nursing, I think it's another division we contend with is that we have a whole rank of nursing management and nursing administrators who are not union members, but in many senses, we also are governing ourselves. Um, and we talk a lot about, you know, oppression from medicine, but, uh, you know, certainly doctors are in leadership within hospitals, but so are nurses. Um, and I think with the weakening of unions in Western liberal democracies, we've, we haven't, actually I'm trying to have a, a week on unions in my course and there's so little written about this. I found a fascinating paper though, where they talk about the militarization of nurses and this idea of, of striking, not militarization, the militancy. Sorry. So we think of strikes as very masculine with, you know, miners and factory workers, but actually this, this professor at York um, has documented that the most militant long drawn out strikes have consistently been by nurses, but we don't talk about nursing that way. Right. We don't have pictures of, of nurses. Um, and this is not, you know, back in, back in the day by any means. So I, I think nursing is interesting and I, I really love nursing. I love nursing work. And I think there's such potential for this, this group of people to really enact incredible change um, because of where it's situated and because of those tensions. And then we have the coup in Washington, D.C., where we have a whole bunch of nurses with megaphones, with the people with MAGA hats espousing, you know, their... So there was like a group identifying idea. as like how I have heard of the nurses. Yeah. At, um, yeah. The coup. Yeah. Canadian nurses. So two Canadian what nurses. What is it with the Canadians? Not that I'm expecting you to speak for all Canadians, but you have this reputation of being these sort of, you know, everyone sort of left and, you know, I know that this isn't true, but, and then like Lauren Southern, um, Jordan Peterson, all of these very vocal um, alt-right people. Don't forget Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is here, Canadian. <laughs> okay, there we go. It's ours. Ah, well, there you go. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. It's homegrown. Yeah, and so what? So it's Canadian nurses were down at... So this is a fantastic case study for my, my class because it brings in the professionalism, the self-regulation. So our college is currently investigating two nurses who crossed a closed border um, to go speak at this rally in Washington, D.C. Um, and there are so many things wrong with that, but the college is choosing to discipline them for publicly speaking out in ways that they deem unprofessional, which I think has to do with uh, questioning uh, vaccine hesitancy and being anti-mask. So rather than addressing that whole like inciting violence thing, crossing closed borders, the racism, the college is going to censor these nurses for their speech. Mm. And that is so problematic. 
and doesn't even begin to touch on. So certainly they were joined by a number of American nurses. And I think they are part of, they characterize themselves as a movement. As far as I can tell, they have no web presence. There's about nine of them, but they had a megaphone. They joined these protests. They were the warm up act for someone much worse. Um, and I think generally speaking to a very libertarian, but also a fairly white supremacist aligned agenda to do with, you know, critiques of the pandemic response. But I think that again, circles back to the dangers you have with a group of people who are extremely powerful and generally privileged, um, who often feel very oppressed or are constrained in various ways. Um, and that, that I think as an example or the serial killer, we could come back to the serial killer of where that can go very, very wrong. But to think about that, that channeled in a more, you know, emancipatory direction, I think is what makes me very excited. Yeah, well, it's been uh, a fascinating pleasure uh, talking with you. I've got so many things I need to, so many things I need to Google. Um it's, I was just looking at Trump nurses' capital. There's a whole bunch of them who have all been arrested uh, from America and Canada. Crazy. And yeah, we'll have to look into this uh, serial killer situation as well. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so interesting. Okay, take care, guys. Be well. Bye, Quinn. Okay, bye. Okay, so uh, the book uh, prize competition um, has come. What's the book to called again? Uh, Unsettling food politics, agriculture, dispossession, and sovereignty in Australia by uh, Chris Mays, um, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2018, recently brought out in paperback in 2020. Uh, so the winner of this. Um, uh, and the arduous task of uh, quote tweeting, uh, which I recognise I didn't explain adequately the first time, or even maybe subsequent times. Um, so the winner, without further ado, is uh, Megan Warren. Um, and so we will uh, post a copy out to you um, at some stage, as soon as the good people at Australia Post uh, get it to you I guess so congratulations yeah thanks to Megan for the Twitter love um okay so and if anyone else has any books or any other things they'd like us to get rid of through uh competitions and promos <laughs> <laughs> feel free to send them on <laughs> excellent is that everything that's everything yes so thanks for listening um, you can find Undisciplinary on usual pod apps and places, um, rate, subscribe, review, etc. We are on Twitter at Undisciplinary underscore. Our website is Undisciplinary.org. We're on Instagram. Yeah. Excellent. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.